Hello and welcome to the Eco Chamber, brought to you by the team from the environmental policy magazine, The Ends Report. In this episode, we'll be looking at the government's proposed new legally binding environment targets. We'll be looking at DEFRA's plans to overhaul its arm's length bodies. And then we'll look at why the Environment Agency and Natural England have begun legal action over the bulldozing of the protected banks of an important river. Then Jamie is going to quiz Tess and I on something about which we have no prior knowledge, so that will expose our ignorance. And then after that, Jamie and I are going to take a deep dive looking at how toxic chemicals can contaminate drinking water supplies. Then Simon and Gareth are going to be along, the Chemical Brothers, and they're going to suck all the joy you ever had out of children's toys. So without further ado, let's enter the Eco Chamber. I'm Rachel Salvage, Deputy Editor of The Ends Report, and I'm here as usual with our editor, Jamie Carpenter. Hello. And I'm very pleased to say that journalist Tess Colley is also back with us, having recovered from a nasty bout of COVID. How are you feeling, Tess? I'm just about better. Thank you very much, Rachel. Are you? Good. So the first story is a pretty big one. As part of the Environment Act 2021, the government is required to set legally binding targets to improve the state of England's wildlife, water, air and the way that waste is managed. Uh, last week, the government began that process, so they've proposed 12 targets that are now up for consultation alongside a green paper on nature recovery and a very quietly published paper on the reform of the habitats regulations. You can find out lots about all of the targets on ngreport.com, but here we're just going to look at water and nature targets. Tess, you've been looking at the nature targets and the green paper. Can you tell me a little bit about them? Yeah, well, where to start? It's So much came out last week, uh, all in one go. You could say maybe because government didn't want too much scrutiny all in one go maybe if you were cynical um (laughs) we're not cynical here no no so we don't think that no but um yes there's some really big things came out really the the nature targets one of the ones that has caused some you know the most furore i think is this one about increasing biodiversity by 10 percent by 2042 based on 2030 levels okay so there's currently a target to halt the decline of species by 2030 Mm-hmm. which is great and, it, you know, it's generally received as world-leading, very good. Uh, however, what campaigners are saying is if you're only increasing by 10% on 2030 targets, on 2030 levels, sorry, then you may end up with less nature than we currently have or at least the same amount. Uh, yeah, exactly. So they're saying it could be a complete a complete cop-out, basically. So the wildlife could have deteriorated by the baseline. And yes. so, so when we get back to 2042, we could be lower than where we are today. Yeah, because between now and 2030, nature is only going to keep declining. We're meant to halt the decline by 2030. Sure. But yes. Mm. The devil's in the detail, isn't mm, it? Yes. Um, so what have uh, green groups said about this? They're very disappointed and quite exasperated by it. They, they were so happy with getting the that commitment to halt the decline of species. Yeah. Uh, and then this coming through in the second round has really let a lot of them down. There's also another target about creating or restoring in excess of 500,000 hectares of wildlife-rich habitat. And that's also got some hackles up because what that target doesn't say is it's a net increase in those habitats. Right. And one one NGO source said to me this could potentially mean wildlife-rich habitats being destroyed elsewhere, affecting the overall target being met, so we could end up with less, potentially. Right. 
And these and these sites themselves, they are not the protected areas either, are they? They're not the most important. I mean, obviously, it's it's critical that they're improved, but they're mm. not our kind of special sites or protected areas or anything like that, are they? Yeah, exactly. And I think one of the most controversial things of the targets is actually what's not in them. There's the, there's no target to improve the conditions of some of our, our most protected sites. Um, and this is something that I think a lot of the green groups had perhaps expected, definitely wanted, mm. um, because, you know, the Wildlife and Countryside Link, which is a coalition of NGOs, pointed out that currently you've only got 38% of triple SIs, which are some you know, really protected sites, are in favourable condition. Mm. And you ha- if you haven't even got your your best, most valued sites in a good condition, yeah. what does that what, what does that say? Yeah. And there's a as a an ambition in the 25 year environment plan mm. to get 20, 75% of those triple SIs that you mentioned into good condition by 2042. But that's not in the that's not in it. And the government they obviously they knew this criticism would be coming because it's so obvious. Mm. Um, and they say, well, it would be premature to have that target because then because of the green paper, which we're going to talk about. Oh, um, nice segue. Okay, <laughs> yeah. let's talk about the green paper. Um, mm. So yeah, tell us a little bit more about the green paper and what's in it. Does it go some way to address that problem? Uh, well, what the green paper does is open up, as green papers do, they open up questions. They're not kind of committing the government to anything, but it opens up uh, a proposal. Basically, the government is interested in completely overhauling how protected sites mm. uh, are kind of managed legally. They're looking for a, a simpler legal structure. Uh, they say potentially merging uh, protected sites and then tiering them. Mm. Um, so you'd be bringing ones that you know are currently protected under EU-derived law with ones protected under domestic law. And this is, you know, this has raised quite a lot of eyebrows. We kind of knew it was coming. We knew that they wanted to change the the habitats regulations. Mm. Uh, but yes, going simpler generally worries conservationists, mm. in my experience. I mean, simplifying the way that they're categorised and stuff. I mean, and helping people to understand mm. why things are protected it sort of makes sense to a degree, mm. as long as the protections that they have are strong or strengthened. It, has there been any noise around that? Yeah. Well, this is the thing. Going simpler doesn't have to be bad, like you say. Mm. Like it could be good to help you, you know, people understand what they are because mm-hmm. yeah, it's very complex. Um, however. There's nothing, a lot of criticism has been, well, okay, this is a nature recovery paper. Where's the recovery element? Mm. Um, What's actually happening? A lot of people said, well, what, you know, you're shuffling shuffling names and changing names of things and little shifts here and there. What's... what's really going to change change things yeah yeah exactly and this is all against the context of the uk being yes i get to get, I get to get the sentence in every time one of the world's <laughs> most nature depleted countries we'll keep saying that until it's not jamie you've been looking at the habitats regulations as well what what's going on there yeah well if if you, if you think back to last year george eustace the environment secretary gave a big speech and and in that speech i think it was at delamere forest he announced his intention to refocus the habitats regulations which you might say slightly worrying given that he's previously mm. described the birds and habitats directives as spirit crushing during the Brexit <laughs> referendum campaign. <laughs> um, so from that, there, there a couple of things happened. One, one was that um, he set up this small working group. Um, so there are four people on there. Um, Rebecca Powell, the environment minister. Um, Richard Bennion was chairing it, the uh, environment minister and the lords. Um, Tony Juniper from Natural England and uh, QC Christopher Kotowski. That was set up to consider the change that might be appropriate. They, so they also amended the Environment Act to allow George Eustace or the Secretary of State to refocus habitat regulation. So, mm. so what's happened alongside the Nature Recovery Green Paper is that 
that working groups report was actually published at the same time um and it's kind of clearly fed into a lot of what Tessa has been talking about about how the different designations could possibly be merged or tiered um but so so that was kind of quite quite interesting to see what what's come out of that um and and the kind of issues that that they um they kind of pinpointed around the habitat regulation assessment process mm. So has anybody had chance to react to this yet, or is everyone still reeling from the targets in the green paper? I think it is the the targets in the green paper certainly seem to have kind of got a lot of um, most of the airtime, and mm. this this is kind of quite closely kind of interlinked and clearly informed the green paper. So I think a lot of the criticism that Tess, Tess has pointed out around the fact that that actually, if you've got a twenty thirty target, if you're going to sort of change these things, you're effectively kind of rearranging the debt chairs for three yeah. or four years, and and you're not actually getting any closer to those targets. So I think that's the kind of that's the kind of concern. Yeah, I think I saw in one of those papers that the Secretary of State would be the person to sign off to finally approve the designations. Is that a change? Who does that now? Is it Natural England and in the future it's mm. going to be Eustace or his successor? <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah, well, it's currently sits with Natural England yeah. to decide which sites are designated as protected. Um, the paper proposes that this power come into the Secretary of State's uh, portfolio mm. that's also raised some concerns I mean I think someone said to me it is a bit of a quirk that Natural England currently have that power because you know a lot of these things would often end um, it would be the Secretary of State who would decide them however it's the the paper talks also about being led by science a familiar term mm. um, but they say well if you want to be led by the science why are you taking it out of the hands of the experts yeah um, and that's there's a there's a bit of a fear that uh, what it was a quote I someone someone said to me um protected sites you we do we don't want sites of political convenience we want sites <laughs> of special scientific interest nice yes nice okay <laughs> well moving on to the water targets just quickly now there are, as I mentioned before I think there are 12 targets in total that the defra has proposed uh, there's details on all of them on the com. you can go there and have a look uh, but we're just looking at the nature targets and now the water targets um, there are four water targets in total, and they kind of replace the water framework directive-based targets, which were really, really thorough and had a long-term target for river health. I think it was 2015, we were supposed to have all rivers in good condition. Obviously, they are not, so that was missed. And there were interim targets, and the final, final target is the 2027 one, and we're not going to hit that either. Um, there's no replacement for that in these uh, these proposed targets, but there are four Sort of, sort of sector-based targets. Um, Jamie, can you tell me a little bit about those? Yes, I can. So, as you say, there's no, there's no kind of overarching water framework directive target, and I think that that's been been interesting to see the um, DEFRA's response to some of the coverage around that. So, so there have been some reports that the government has dropped a, a national target for all, all rivers, and, and DEFRA says that's not correct because the water framework directive is enshrined in. UK law, but that's slightly disingenuous it because is. these are long-term targets, mm-hmm. and that target finishes in 2027. And then there's no more. And there's yeah. no more. So, so that's when so, it yeah. ends. So that's um. We see you, Devra. <laughs> <laughs> Don't can't get that past us. Mm. Um. So, but there, but there are targets. There's um. There's a kind of agricultural target. So to reduce nitrogen, phosphorus, and sediment contribution from agriculture in the water environment by at least 40% by 2027 against the 2018 baseline. Mm-hmm. Does that have the same issue as the nature targets then, with the, with the baseline being 2018 when things are pretty bad? Yes, exactly, mm. exactly. So that, that's that's similar to the the um, there's a target around reducing phosphorus loadings from treated wastewater by 80% by 2037 against the 2020 baseline. On that one as well, and that's only treated wastewater. So 
the combined sewer overflows, which are the um, the outfalls that pour out raw sewage that we've talked about a million times and is all over all the national media, that's not included. So, I mean, this is great because you do want the uh, loading centrated wastewater to be slashed. But, the, you know, part of the problem, a large part of the problem is the CSOs and they don't fall under this. Although there are amendments in the Environment Act that do include that kind of stuff, but people don't think it's going far enough. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So, so there, there, are, there, are, there are other targets. There's one about reducing the use of public water supply in England by head of population by 20% by 2037. Mm. And there's one around reducing the length of rivers and estuaries polluted by target substances from abandoned mines by 50% by 2037. Yeah. More to say on that. Yeah, exactly. exactly. <laughs> well, the, the, the thousand, so the Environment Agency really likes the per kilometres improved um, sort of measurement. But people have said to me who actually work at the Environment Agency, it's an absolute nonsense because if there has been some work done on a stretch of river, the Environment Agency will then count that as having been improved, even if it didn't work. Um, so they're saying this is just, uh, I quote, a measuring tool used by the Environment Agency that's based on no monitoring or scientific data or evidence. It's a finger in the air guesstimate of what enhancements have been made to a watercourse, they say. I'm just putting it out there. That's not my words. <laughs> that's not my well, I words. Think, I think there's a thing, though, with, with the water targets and the other the other targets that have been announced. That these are a, a really big test of the government's green ambitions. And mm. if you remember back to when the Environment Bill kind of went through its final stage and it got royal assent, there was a lot of... Um, there's a lot of argument around various elements. The government's saying it's a world-leading piece of legislation, mm. but campaigners said it fell short on things like the OEP's independence and on sewage and, and air quality. And, and at that point in time, people were saying, well, you need to look out for these long-term environmental targets because yes. this will be the next kind of battle. Yeah. And it, it does look, from what's come out there, that really the government's not going far enough and, mm-hmm. and there's a lot of disillusionment about what, what's... Um, What's happened? So, that, so what happens over the the eight weeks of consultation? How the government's response is going to be really, um, really important. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So, it's not, don't look at what we're saying now. Look at what we're going to say in the future, and then don't look at what we're saying now. Look at what we're going to say in the future. That's happening uh, repeatedly. Um, one thing, other thing, I wanted to mention about the water targets is the um, the fact that key pollutants aren't highlighted at all. I mean, they are in relation to abandoned mines and things, and they're looking at the metals, and that's good. But there are so many things that are not mentioned at all. There's a lot of key problem chemicals, pharmaceuticals, pathogens, microplastics, nanomaterials, none of that is mentioned in there at all. So I think it's got a long way to go before it's going to please anybody. Our next story also flows from the Green Paper. In it, DEFRA said it's considering overhauling its arms-length bodies, which of course includes the Environment Agency and Natural England, among others. Now, these poor organisations are regularly under threat of being transformed over the years. They've been said that they're going to be merged or they're going to be broken to pieces. There was a 2012-13 uh, triennial review, which cost half a million pounds and concluded that they should remain separate but work more closely together. And since then, things have happened like their finance functions, IT, press office, they've all been merged, which many say have compromised their independence. Um, now, they're talking about it again. Jamie, can you tell me a little bit more about what they're saying? Yes. So there was a section in the Green Paper about a review of arm length bodies, and it, it talks about the regulatory landscape becoming fragmented and complex. It, it sort of raises the idea of exploring options for consolidating the DEFRA group dispersed environmental regulatory functions and looking at what institutional and delivery arrangements would best support the UK government's objective for nature recovery. Mm. Um, and I think I think the, the, most, the most telling thing is that if you look at the questions towards the end of the Green Paper, it asks... What are the opportunities for consolidating environmental delivery functions into a single body? So that that kind of 
maybe that gives us a, a kind of a, an indication of where, where DEFRA sees this, this going. Yeah, they also refer back to the Dame Glennis Stacey review, which was back in 2018. We've reported that on the Energy Report site, uh, if you want to read more about it. But it recommended a dedicated farms regulator. You know, if they're referring to it in this document as well, maybe that's another way of looking at it, that they want to split it by, you know, by sector. One's looking at farms, the other one's looking at regulated industry, potentially. And in the past, they've, uh, people have said you need to take out the floods element of the environment agencies working and keep that separate. So there's lots of different ways they could they could go with it. So maybe the farming regulator is the direction of travel. Yeah, and I think I think when you, when you look at the um, DEFRA group and how many arms length bodies there are, there, there I think there are thirty or so, and you, you can see that there is there is definitely overlap. Thirty. I'm going to have to <laughs> Google that later. Um, the consultations for all of the above, or the targets and the green paper, they all close on the 11th of May. So if you want your view heard, get your um, responses in now. Our final story is about the destruction one farmer has meted out on the banks of the River Lug in Herefordshire. In 2020, the local wildlife trust freaked out after it found a stretch of the river bulldozed, straightened and reprofiled. That's how they said they found it. If that was not bad enough, it's a protected site of special scientific interest. And what, what the trust says is one of the UK's most important rivers. Tess, have you got some information on that for us? Well, yes. So this happened, as you say, in 2020, and there's been an investigation ongoing, well, more or less since then. I've gone to the EA multiple times asking for updates, and there's always been nothing until now. Um, they've said that Natural England and the Environment Agency are going to begin legal action against Price, that's the farmer, uh, with charges relating directly to unconsented operations and causing damage to the SSSI. Mm. The charges, they say, also relate to causing uh, a water discharge activity, failing to take reasonable precaution to prevent agricultural pollution, willfully disturbing spawn or spawning fish and breaching a stock notice. So that's really quite a lot. It is quite a lot. But, Jamie, you've covered this in the past as well, haven't you? What, what did John Price, he's the, the potato grower, isn't he? What did he say? I think he said he had the permits or something, in it? Yeah, there, there was a big dispute where yeah. he said he had the permits for work and the environment actually said he didn't. It should be fairly easy to prove, <laughs> prove what, or otherwise. Yeah. Yeah. Um, the, the, the kind of farming community's response to this. So I think at the time or soon afterwards... Um, the farmer John Price he he said that he would he had um, dredged, straightened, and cleared the river in order to protect um, a nearby hamlet that had been affected by flooding mm. kind of fairly soon before that. Yeah. Um, and he said he had supported the villagers and and the local parish council. Yeah. And th- th- I think only last week there was a, there was a petition that was published on um, Farmers Weekly, mm. sort of where it's got nearly I think it's got nearly three hundred signatures now, and that, this is expressing support for John Price and all prairie and owners for the. The maintenance and removal of obstructions such as dead wood and silt from the rivers. So there's there's he's right. he's almost like a bit of a hero amongst that community, but a villain amongst our kind of community of readers and environmentalists. Yeah, that's interesting, isn't it? So he was just clearing fallen debris because it looks from the photographs that it was <laughs> more than fallen debris that had been removed. Yes, I mean some some of the language about about how this has been described is called decimated and um, devastation and people are absolutely horrified by what's happened so mm. the other thing that's kind of interesting is that we were talking last time about the environment agency and and maybe getting a kind of a hard time in media coverage and, mm. and this, this is actually it looks I mean we'll see what happens with the prosecution but it looks like a success story it looks like it's actually happened quite 
quite quickly in terms of how you measure how long these prosecutions take. Yeah. So, that, yeah, because it, if it's 2020, it's 2022. Or was it, when in 2020? It was, right, you know? it was just before Christmas, wasn't it? So right. it's kind of really just over, a, just over a year. So Fast work by the regulators. Yes. <laughs> yeah. Good news. Um, so why is this river so important, Tess? Um, well, it's, it's, as you said, it's a designated site of uh, special interest. Uh, so, yeah, not to bang on about more protected sites, but it's <laughs> a good test of what, what happens if you damage a protected site under current laws. Yeah. Um, and the Wildlife Trust say it's home to crayfish, otters and salmon. Right. Um, so, yeah, and those, and those are all, you know, protected, protected species. Mm. So, and yeah, you can't just go around destroying these habitats without consequences. Mm, so we are learning. Okay, mm. brilliant. Uh, we're going to watch this one with interest and we will come back to it when there have been some developments. Jamie, it's quiz time. What do you have in store for us? Well, this is a real treat and uh, it's slightly um, embarrassing on my part because it, it kind of gives away a little bit about my Saturday night viewing habits. So, <laughs> Uh-oh. So, um, <laughs> Where are we going with this? <laughs> <Yeah>. So <laughs> I thought I thought we could do a quiz that's based on the show National Lottery Who Dares Wins. <laughs> right. Hosted by, by none other than Nick Knowles. Nick Knowles. <laughs> so have you have you seen this show? Can't say I have, Jamie. Okay, so <laughs> And I wouldn't admit to it if I had. <laughs> okay. So so basically what happens is that contestants are given a topic, could say um no Premier League football teams or something like that, and they, they have to decide how many they can name. So Rachel, for example, you might say five, and then Tess has to decide whether she can answer more or less than the that really? bid. Do more than five. Um, and then, <laughs> then it kind of carries on until one of you decide to drop out and say, okay, Rachel, name those. And if you can name them, oh, yes. you win. If you can't name them, then Tess wins. Is that everything clear as mud? <laughs> <laughs> so the topic that we're going to look at on National Lottery Who Dares Wins, end style, is DEFRA arm's length bodies. <laughs> Stop it and roll. <laughs> Strap yourselves in, everybody. It's going to be exciting. Oh. So how many how many um, Defra armslit bodies can you can you okay. name Tess? I'm going to need a minute. There's so many. It's drama. <laughs> uh, cut, cut the atmosphere with a knife, can't you? <laughs> yeah, and if you get it wrong, is there any kind of penalties? It just means the other person wins. Okay. If you, yeah. Oh my god, I've had a real mind blank. Mm, so have I. Just to make it more interesting, is that there's actually three different types of arms length public bodies within so you, you have non departmental public bodies, executive agencies and non ministerial departments. So we maybe get a oh, bonus yeah. points for kind of saying what type the <laughs> Oh <laughs> So how many how many tests can you I've done very badly, but I'm gonna blame COVID remains mm. in my yeah. brain. I I've got five down. Five. I'm gonna go with Seven. Seven. So, Tess, you have to say to Rachel, name them, or you can go one higher if you want to. Oh, I don't believe you. <laughs> Tell me. <laughs> okay, I'm going with the Animal, Plant and Health Authority Agency. Yes, that is that is one. Yeah, still exists. Excellent. Obviously, Natural England uh, Environment Agency, Forestry Commission, um, Cefas. Yes, um, Cefas is there. Now, I was going to say CEH, but I think that's gone private. I think that's now an independent organisation altogether, so I won't say that. Um, the What's the highways agency called now? National Highways? Yeah. National Highways. Yeah, that's not a DEFRA one, though. Transport. That's so, so it's been right for copying of you. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know whether the... Uh, yeah, there's some... Mm, oh, my gosh. I think... Oh. Uh, Oh, this, this, actually, this is not the way we want it to go. Uh, 
So I think I haven't got seven. I think I've got animal, plant health, etc. Natural England, uh, Environment Agency, Forestry Commission, Cefas. Oh, yeah, I'm wrong. That's awful. Invasive species and things. Yeah. I had, I had I had the rural payments agency. Oh, yeah, that's a good one. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Yeah. Yes. Yeah, there's some other other names that people might recognize, like Marine Management Organization. Oh, yep. Joint uh, Nature Conservation Committee. Yeah. Um, so there's quite a few veterinary products commission. <laughs> I would not have got that no. one in a million years. So, but yeah, there's a whole, whole host of weird and wonderful um, organisations there. So mm, we'll see how many are left after George Eustace does his, does his stuff. <laughs> <laughs> but um, thank you for that, Jamie. Thank you very much. And well done, Tess, for winning. It was a great victory. That was really, <laughs> really, really impressive. Um, we are moving on now to our, our deep dive section where Jamie and I are going to talk about the world of forever chemicals. Okay, so I'm back with Jamie and we're going to take you on a deep dive into the world of PFAS. I think this one is going to need a little bit of a primer, so bear with me. I'll try and make this painless. PFAS stands for perfluoroalkyl and polyfluoroalkyl substances, PFAS. So they're valued for their non-stick, stain-repellent and heat-resistant properties. And they're used in a huge number of everyday products from food packaging, which doesn't sound like a great idea, cosmetics, cookware, waterproof clothing, carpets, mattresses, electronics, firefighting foams, and then lots of industrial processes such as metal finishing and plating, hydraulics, fluids and so on. But, and there's a big but, and you knew it was coming, right? At least two of them, PFOA and PFOS, which we will refer to as PFOA and PFOS because that's uh, easier, are a complete nightmare for people and wildlife. They're toxic, they're persistent, and they bioaccumulate. They really are the gift that keeps on giving. Jamie, what kind of diseases have these been linked to? Well, all, all sorts of nasty stuff. So PFOA has been linked to kidney and testicular cancer, thyroid disease, hypertension, low birth weight and high cholesterol. Great. Um, PFOS, on the other hand, being linked to suppressed immune response, high cholesterol, low birth weight, and there's loads of studies showing reproductive and developmental problems. And I think just to frighten our listeners even further, it's extremely likely that I have PFAS in my blood. Just you? Just me. Well, not just me, no. <laughs> I think you and pretty much everyone listening will have PFAS in their yeah. blood. So research from states show that most people in the US have one or more specific PFAS in their blood, which is really quite scary. Yeah. So just these two that we mentioned, PFOS and PFOA, have been banned or restricted because, well, because there's more evidence on the effects of these, whereas many others haven't been studied enough. I recently wrote an alarming story about PFOS contaminating a drinking water source in South Cambridgeshire. Um, what happened here is that 400 nanograms per litre of PFOS was found in the source that supplies a couple of villages. That's four times higher than the drinking water inspectorate's limit of a 100 nanograms per litre, which is actually a very high limit when compared to many other countries anyway. Uh, the water company told me that um, they had to take the source out of supply because if they didn't, they could not guarantee a blend of below 100 nanograms per litre for drinking water coming out of people's taps. But since the story's broken, they've become very defensive and they said that nobody would have received that concentration of PFOS, which directly contradicts the first statement. I'll let listeners make their own minds up about that. But of course, it's a lot broader than Cambridge. It's, it's nationwide. It's worldwide, as Jamie said before. The, it's been found in penguin eggs in Antarctica and polar bears in the Arctic, but also animals closer to home. Yeah, that's right. I mean, we, we, there was a study a few weeks ago that looked at otters, these were researchers from Cardiff University and that they tested 
50 otters found dead in England and Wales between 2007 and 2009. Were they collecting them or did they just come across them? <laughs> um, I don't know. I think I think a lot of them, it sounded like, were, were kind of, um, unfortunately, they, they were roadkill, I think. Um, right. So what they found was that they detected PFAS in, in all of them. And 80% of the animals had at least 12 different types of the chemicals in, in their livers. And I, th- I think because of the way the animals died, they couldn't really tell quite how harmful the levels were, yeah. but they could detect these chemicals in, in, in the animals. And that sounds really widespread. I mean, they're not, they can only sort of, they're fairly opportunistic about how they find the animals. So, but to find it in such a large percentage of them, that sounds really worrying. Yeah, exactly. And I think this is, this is the thing that I think, um, although PFAS so far has had a very low profile in the UK, yeah. I suppose people might have seen the the film Dark Waters with um, stars Mark Ruffalo and, and, and tells the story of um, Rob Billet, who's a, a US lawyer who's um, been fighting for many years for, for people affected by the chemicals in, in the in the States. But it's actually not just the stuff of movies and, it, and it, the, these chemicals are here, but it seems very much that the, the regulation and, and controls here are sort of lagging far behind other parts of the world. Mm, definitely. The water companies are only really obligated to sort of risk assess their catchments um, that's all they have to do by by law. And if they think that there's a problem in that catchment, then they need to sort of investigate that. But that means that a desk assessment is done and, that you know, I don't know how accurate they can be. From that point, then they go on and, and test their supplies or not. I mean, more recently, the Drinking Water Inspectorate has told all the water companies to assess their catchments now for 47 particular PFAS, which is really good. But that communication only went to the water sector in October. And to think that this has been going on in the States for more than 20 years, it's not as though we haven't had a, a heads up on this. So we're so far behind. I've been speaking to a number of experts in America and it's quite embarrassing how far yeah. ahead they are and how little we've done. Yeah, no, no, that's right. But it, 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 does, it does seem that actually there may at some point in the future that, that we will hear follow suit with more, I suppose, more ex- extensive and tighter regulation and, 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 and guidance. I think before Christmas there was a call for evidence issued by the Health and Safety Executive and Environment Agency sort of seeking ideas for controls on PFAS. Yeah, because, yeah. Um, what do we do? I think you'd like to think that there are enough ideas from elsewhere in the, yeah. on, on the planet that, that might give us a thought. But I think there is an interesting area around should those controls, tighter regulation happen, then what, what does that mean for companies? And, and I think essentially that could end up costing firms quite a lot of money. In terms of paying out on liabilities? Yeah, exactly. So you might have sites that are, are close to... Um, have been or are close to a source of PFAS contamination and, and, and that might leave investors, landowners and developers with large liabilities mm. or might mean that they have costs and delays that they, they weren't aware of yeah. or there might be kind of future remedial costs that, that they might have to, to deal with that would be a lot higher than they might might have thought of. So yeah. there is a kind of, although there's a very worrying kind of public health and environmental angle to this, I think in terms of companies and, and liabilities it's also something that I think people really need to be aware of in the, in the coming years when 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 these these title rules do inevitably follow even though it might be a lot later than they should have done yeah yeah I know that just the class actions that Rob Billart has been working on I don't think anybody has accepted liability however the amount of money paid out in settlements is somewhere in the region of 750 million dollars and I think those are just the ones that he's been involved with he's not the only lawyer doing this now so yeah, maybe a lot of companies are holding their breath yeah. <laughs> and waiting and watching and uh, with one eye on their bank account. And now I'm going to hand over to the Chemical Brothers, Simon Pickstone and Gareth Simpkins.
Thanks for that, Rachel. Uh, this time on the agenda of the Chemical Brothers is the subject of chemicals in toys. Not the most obvious place where you'd want to find harmful substances, particularly as young kids are more likely to put things in their mouths and are more vulnerable to chemical impacts anyway. And yet, it's alarmingly common for regulators to find toys that are in breach of legal thresholds. That's right. In the EU context, we have pretty regular surveys showing that a hefty percentage of toys found on the European market contain harmful levels of restricted chemicals. For instance, we had in 2018 a survey from the European Chemicals Agency, ECHA, which found that of the toys that are inspected in the EU market, 20% of them contain plasticizers above permitted levels. That's horrible. Mm. I mean, that's stunningly awful, really, isn't it? Uh, it's not good. These are chemicals like DEHP, which are already restricted in the EU, and they're known to pose problems to our endocrine systems. And that basically has impacts and implications for our reproductive system. It can have behavioral problems in kids. It can do all kinds of yeah, nasty stuff. thyroid system as well. Yeah. It, this, 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 this sounds like a scandal. Yeah, I mean, particularly so because it's involving children who, as you mentioned, are far more likely to have adverse effects of being exposed to harmful chemicals. Um, there's evidence mounting that kids in the EU and across Europe, I think, as a whole, are far more likely to be contaminated with plasticizers than adults are. A 2016 study, for instance, found that in the EU, kids were twice as contaminated as their mothers on average. And in certain cases, that was up to 12 times as much as their parents. So... What's also interesting about this is that we've, we've known about the problem for quite a long time. And in fact, in the EU, there's a whole directive devoted purely to assessing chemicals levels in toys and setting thresholds. But without enforcement, it's meaningless. And it sounds like there's not much enforcement going around it. Well, we've got a really, really fragmented picture overall because member states are responsible for testing products and not the EU itself. Some of them are more responsible and have broader testing regimes and other that's broadly the scandinavian countries isn't yeah it? i mean denmark and sweden are really miles ahead nice. of everyone else um the uk by contrast when we were an eu member it's fair to say we weren't exactly pulling our weight <laughs> that's an incredibly complimentary way to put it yes so um, the uk situation is grim frankly it's a postcode lottery at best with few councils and it's councils that are responsible for doing this uh, taking any meaningful degree of action on toys or other products for that matter at all it's just an easy one to cut out from uh, stressed budgets um, unchecked uk found in uh, 2020 that only half of british local authorities had performed any inspections at all within the past three years now that's failing to uphold their statutory duty I've lost track a little bit, but now that we've obviously left the EU, have we set up a kind of parallel system to the EU product monitoring system? What's yeah, the deal? Yeah, that's the rapid alert system. Yeah, uh, it was introduced in uh, January last year. The uh, It's called the Unsafe Product Report System. It's uh, under the auspices of the uh, Office for Product Safety and Standards. It's the idea then that local councils, if they are testing, would then put the results of those tests up onto this database? Yes, precisely. And previously, it would have been sent to the uh, European uh, European Commission's equivalent system. The safety gate. Yeah. But we, yes, safety gate. Or rapid alert. Yes, yes, it changed its name, hasn't it? Uh, but so many, so, so f there are so few products being reported that in the EU system, it, and as I said, it's a question of funding. I mean, I think funding is a problem in the EU as well. The conversations going on in Brussels at the moment partly revolve around how you could better fund regulators so that they can carry out more checks. And I think there's a whole conversation around whether you could actually direct some of the customs duties directly towards that kind of national Sounds process. Like a sensible approach. I mean, I mean, what's interesting in the EU is that you have a relatively consensus-driven approach to checking for products because industry and green groups, weirdly enough, are kind of on the same side here. Um, it, it makes actually a lot of sense when you think that if you're a legitimate EU 
plastics manufacturer, for instance, you're bound by a whole bunch of EU regulations and you want to make sure that foreign imports effectively are bound by those same rules. Otherwise, you're, you're at a disadvantage commercially. It's actually an example of something that's increasingly common these days. It's uh, chemical uh, producers and uh, NGOs kind of singing from the same hymn sheet. Yeah, definitely. I mean, in the EU, there's even a kind of formalized process now. The European Commission published in 2020 its chemical strategy, which is a quite large document with a kind of roadmap for how the EU is going to get to a safer chemicals regime. Part of this involves setting up a roundtable with industry, NGOs, um, some international bodies, a whole bunch of experts, um, and they've been producing reports around the future of the, the EU chemicals industry. One of the reports that they issued in November last year was precisely around the product testing regime. And they came up with a bunch of proposals on a whole range of aspects of testing, including how you could better fund um, inspections, but also things like how maybe you could set up a centralized control force across Europe, potentially making online platforms liable so that if you're, say, um, eBay... Flogging um, off something that uh, has an unlawful amount of uh, restricted chemical. Well, yeah, but I mean, because eBay isn't isn't selling it directly. It's providing a platform for sellers from outside the EU to be selling their wares within the EU. And in fact, a bunch of online marketplaces have been caught selling stuff that they really shouldn't have been selling. I've noticed that myself, though I, w I would stress I was contacted by... Uh, eBay a few weeks ago about um, how they're actually trying to tackle this kind of trade. I mean, the EU, so you're not ignoring it. The, the, the EU was, these are one of the ideas that are floating about. It's not a formal proposal at this point, but certainly industry and NGO stakeholders are quite keen on the idea that maybe some online marketplaces could be held liable for the products that are made available on their platforms, even if they're not directly selling them. Um, so we do have a shift in the direction, which seems to be actually a positive sign. Absolutely. Meanwhile, uh, on this side of the channel, the UK's chemical strategy is still uh, absent without leave and testing remains shoddy and uh, there's not much prospect of anything changing anytime particularly soon. A green Brexit. Here we go. <laughs> yeah, green Brexit. So much for that, folks. So that brings us to the end of this episode of The Eco Chamber. Thank you to our editor, Jamie Carpenter, and journalist Tess Colley, Gareth Simpkins, and Simon Pickstone. If you're interested in hearing more about any of the stories we've been discussing today, please go to energyreport.com, where you'll find more detail than you could possibly ever need. Don't forget to subscribe to the podcast, and we'll see you next time. The Eco Chamber was produced by Ade Bambala from Rethink Audio.